Hey, it's Jay, and I want to tell you why you should consider building a brand that almost nobody can find. Yeah, I know, I know. Just, just hear me out. So, for years, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, outside of an area full of stuff to do and stuff to eat, called Davis Square. People in Boston who are listening right now are screaming at me like, Hey, Davis Square is actually in Somerville, not Cambridge, but I lived on the border, you zealot. Chill out. So, down the street from my house was this bar called Saloon. Just saying the name probably brings to mind an image in your head, right? Saloon? We're of course talking about tons of exposed brick walls and a thick slab of oak for the bar with wrought iron stools running all around it. On the menu, of course, were various cuts of roasted meats and side dishes like Brussels sprouts roasted with all kinds of cheese and oil and maybe like buffalo sauce and bacon. Seriously, Brussels sprouts are delicious because Brussels sprouts are vehicles for other delicious stuff. On the drink menu, predictably, Saloon had an endless list of whiskeys with a bunch of carefully crafted cocktails described more like a grocery list than something you drink. So there's there's like egg in this one drink, and, and nutmeg in another, and chartreuse in one, whatever the heck that is. And, and wait a second, something called a shrub in this one? Okay, okay, we veered away from the grocery store and arrived at Home Depot. But I loved Saloon. Shrubs and all. Loved it. But not the first time. The first time I was invited there by a friend, I hated it. Not because of anything I experienced, but because of what I didn't. I didn't experience the place. I couldn't find it. At least not at first. My Google Maps told me it was right here, I swear, and yet it was nowhere to be found. I walked back and forth looking at my map like a a human windshield wiper getting ever closer to the same spot where I started in the middle. And someone finally went, Saloon? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, oh, it's, it's that door. And there, sitting below a glowing white orb of a streetlight, was the entrance. No sign, no nothing. I looked up at the light again and squinted. In tiny script font, there it was. Saloon. From the day I stepped foot in that place until the day I moved to New York nine years later, if I was meeting someone for a whiskey, a steak, and a side of super fatty vegetables, we were meeting at Saloon. Today on the show, building a speakeasy brand. We may not run a bar here in the B2B marketing world, but some of us would benefit by building our very own speakeasy. I'll explain. This is Exceptions, a show about why the world's best B2B companies are currently betting so heavily on brand. After years of that stuff being derided and overlooked in B2B, brand has become the differentiating factor in a world of infinite choice, noise, and commodities in B2B. This show is a partnership between me, Jay Akunzo, and Drift. I'm an author and a public speaker, and Drift is a company that believes in improving the experience between two businesses, and specifically how one business buys from another. And so Drift has built out software like chatbots and other smart tools to help you connect on your website to people who visit right now, not later, not by forcing them to fill out a form and get back to them in a couple of days right now, because that's when they want to hear from you. In this episode of the show, I go inside Animals. That's Animals with a Z. Animals is an agency that provides content marketing services for some of the top B2B brands that we've explored in this very podcast. Their sweet spot seems to be SaaS companies, but they do have a broader portfolio of clients. And I talked to Devin Bramhall, one of their executives, about why it was so hard to find, well, them. This was what I suspected, and it was what I found, and I am still shocked, and I want to know more. (laughs) So the company Animals operates in SaaS, 
which is a brand centric, content centric, you know, very public type of B2B marketing. And you provide content marketing services. And the company has no Twitter handle, no Instagram, no, fo- no Facebook page, no Snapchat, no LinkedIn page that posts anything. And the first post on the company blog was January 4th, 2018. And it was something that I've seen probably a thousand times before, which is content marketing personas, how to reach your target audience. So, so I guess my question is like, why? <laughs> yeah, this is actually one of my favorite stories because I'm a brand girl. Like I always, like every company that I'm at, I care a lot about the brand side of things. And coming from Help Scout, which was so good at brand and where I loved, you know, working on their brand and building the brand, like, it's so funny that I would be somewhere that is almost like brand agnostic. Um, And in fact, I will tell you, if you go in the Wayback Machine, and I'm going to find this for you, the first version of our website was a single page. And it was like a Yoshi stuffed animal that was like facing a laptop on a desk. It was literally nothing. Um, So we're like, okay, so here's the way I think about Animal's brand right now. We're like a speakeasy. It's like you have to know we exist and you have to be invited by a friend. And what that translates into is we are almost 100% uh, driven by word of mouth. So that to me, like from a brand perspective, I should hate that, right? I should be like, okay, where's our Twitter handle? P.S. We used to have a Twitter handle and I made us shut it down because it was not perfect and we didn't have a concept for it yet. Um, The reason I love our sort of lack of brand and the fact that we are driven by word of mouth is that you don't get recommended unless the quality of your work is good, right? Nobody would recommend us if we were doing a bad job. And there are lots of agencies out there with shiny, beautiful web pages and you know, lots of followers on Twitter who don't necessarily produce the best content, right? And so I am okay with us being low key on the brand side for now. And that is definitely a sign of things to come. So um, be prepared. But for now, I'm okay with being sleepy because we continue to get business. And as long as we as a business are delivering on our the promise of our brand, I can wait on the visual stuff. It's worth noting that they have started to publish more of their own thoughts, most notably on their blog and podcast. But while the podcast continues to publish regular episodes, the blog hasn't been updated since October 2018 at the time of this recording in late March 2019. And despite the ubiquity of Twitter among content marketers, Animals still doesn't have its own company handle. They're very much still a speakeasy brand. So I asked Evan, is that a smart strategy? If you were trying to build your company on word of mouth alone, I think it's really hard. And one of the reasons we were able to do that is because Walter, our CEO, like he has a strong network, not just of like people he loosely knows, like he's a strong network of friends, right? He really, um, he founded a company before animals. So like he really believes in the SaaS industry. He believes in startups. He believes in content marketing. So like he, you know, he had a strong network to begin with. So I don't necessarily think that's the way to go for any agency. That's just my sort of disclaimer. But the reason that we want to, we're not staying this way is that I don't think it's healthy for a company to rely on a single stream of new business. I think it's just smart. Like we want to always be looking ahead, right? Like we don't know, is there going to be a recession soon? And like, you know, it's like, you just can't rely on the single thing that's successful. Just like you can't have one single customer that 
represents the majority of your company's revenue, right? You want to diversify as much as possible. So this is just a matter of keeping our company healthy. I guess I understand that. But what I'm curious about is when you make that shift, what are you worried about? Um, getting too big too fast. I know that sounds like, oh, I think our you know shit doesn't stink or whatever. But like, you know, one of the things that's been a big um, challenge for me personally working at my first agency is like, I'm used to a startup where you have a limited number of people who can take on an exponential number of customers, right? Because you've got a, a SaaS product, right? But with agency, it's more one-to-one. So it's like, I, you know, if I want to take on a new customer, I have to have a physical human being who can produce physical, like a, a definite number of uh, articles, for example, or like a certain amount of work for them. Um, so it's harder to scale. And again, because content, it's harder to scale at a high quality. And so, you know, I want a brand to be out there. I want people to want to, you know, work with us. But I don't want it to happen, you know, and I want to, I do want it to happen fast. I just want to be able to sustain it. So, and that's partially why we sort of waited and didn't really, you know, we didn't immediately try to 10x our lead gen, for example, because we're trying to, at the same time, make sure we have the infrastructure to support it. And like the worst case, I mean, Jake, what keeps me up at night is like, oh my God, what if we get, you know, say we get big, say that my dream comes true and we are this huge agency and like suddenly we become that agency who everybody looks at and is like, they all know the name, but they're like, oh yeah, but their stuff really isn't very good. Like the brand is well known like as a logo, but when people talk about us, they're like, oh yeah, but their stuff actually really isn't good and their people don't know what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. Because you know like, you know who those agencies are, like, you know what those companies are, and you've talked about them. We've all have in like quietly when no one's around. It's like, I am terrified of becoming that. To better understand how a speakeasy brand like Animals makes customers feel and how they develop fierce loyalty as a result, we first need to hear from the voice of an actual customer. Margaret Kelsey leads brand and content marketing at the software company AppQs. The Boston-based startup helps their customers create in-product experiences without writing any code. This includes stuff like user onboarding and feature announcements. For both the AppQs blog and a microsite they manage about UX, AppQs relied on animals to provide great content. Uh, Devin actually brought up this idea that animals is a speakeasy brand. In other words, <laughs> yep. like you, if you know it, you feel like you belong to it and you love it. But yes. there's not like a ton of air game and advertising. They're not plastering their logo everywhere. Talk to me about like, does that phrase resonate with you at all? What, what do you think the characteristics of a speakeasy brand would be if we're like inventing this new category? Because I, I don't know. This is, I, this is the first I've ever heard of this. I, uh, first of all, I love that. Uh, I would go, I would hang out with uh, Devin in a speakeasy any day of the week too. So uh, she seems like like that uh, that resonates very well. I think that it's, it's something that's whispered about, you know, it's something that's like the, uh, the terms of like a speakeasy brand. It was like low key, trustworthy friend that's never going to stand you up. Like they're always there. And I feel like they have my back. Um, and as a, uh, a brand, I feel like what other, other thing would you want out of a brand than knowing that they have your back and, and knowing that they're always going to be there and, and, uh, give you what you need in that moment. But animals, well, 
they didn't always live up to this for AppQs. Despite the great relationship they started with and that they now have, there was this one major issue that they went through together that almost tore everything down. We had been assigned a new writer um, who had a couple assignments in their queue already and uh, had worked on them, had delivered them pretty pretty quickly, um, had a great intro to this person, had a great email thread going, very personable, felt very comfortable initially. We found out really quickly, and I give credit to uh, Katrina, our, our blog editor for this one. She didn't really know a lot about the topic herself. So she started to go and Google and realized that a large part of uh, specifically one of the articles had been lifted from one of the really top results on Google. Said another way, plagiarism. The writer plagiarized another piece, and then he sent it to AppQs as his own words, one that the brand should feel confident in publishing. After all, that's why they hired him and the firm he worked for. That was the reliable list of whiskeys, the regular feel of the exposed brick and the wrought iron stools, the Brussels sprouts doused in some delicious bacon. Except... This writer basically ordered some takeout from down the street and then said, here, we made this for you in our very own kitchen. Ugh. AppQs reached out to the writer and said, hey, I'm not sure if you forgot to change your notes or something like that, and, but you submitted this entire thing as your own writing and it, it's clearly not. They gave him the benefit of the doubt and they wanted to see what this writer would do. So he, I believe, self-reported into Animals and said, hey, I had this, I had AppQs reach out to me and... Um, I don't know if if he really realized the gravity of the issue, but um, Devin handled it so quickly. We had a call with her, uh, I believe, two days later, maybe even if it was the next day after uh, Katrina had sent that email, where she had taken internal process changes. She had unfortunately let the writer go because it didn't seem like um, there was an understanding of the gravity of the situation there, and then did everything in her power to make us feel comfortable. So that was assigning us a new writer that had uh, deep subject matter expertise, and and she knew that that person could be onboarded really quickly and, and has been to some great success, and also just took the time to check in with us personally, and even sent unnecessarily, but sent us sort of a, a box of, of goodies and as an apology gift. So I think the steps that she took afterwards where they were prompt, they were honest. The call that we had, she was visibly shooken up about it, you know, did not think that it was right, did not think it was okay, did not uh, take it lightly, and then moved so swiftly and quickly. And what I, I, I hope that I would have done exactly the same thing as she had done. And that itself gave us the, uh, the feeling that we could stay with the brand and, and trust them and continue to work with them. She acknowledged the issue. She owned it and swiftly responded. But she also did something that most companies, and by companies I mean people, are simply unwilling to do. Devin showed her emotion. She conveyed just how angry she was at this situation and this person who, naturally, no longer works for the firm. She was frustrated, embarrassed, stressed out, and shocked. She let the client know, hey, I get it. I'm a person too. Think of how I feel. In fact, no need. I'm showing you right now. Not so you feel bad for me, but so we have a real moment of actual connection around what could push us apart. It's humility. It's like human connection. It's this moment that that I think that knocks your 
mind out of this idea of like, we are two companies interacting and knocks you into this moment of like, oh yeah, we're two human beings interacting. And I think that the screen sometimes, um, I, I imagine that a lot of the folks that are listening uh, to your podcast are, are working on screens all day or, or working through screens. And I think screens can can make us forget that. Like whether or not your even your communication is going from one to many, um, you're still human beings connecting with human beings. And, and I think that's like where people are trying to get at with that authenticity is that it's not like a robot interacting with many. I mean, you might use robots to do that, but it's really about the the human connection and being able to see that there's a human on the other side of the screen that can be really powerful. Throughout this show, we've defined brand as the way others feel about the behavior of your people. That's it. That's all this is. Your people create the work or hire agencies to do so, and that work provides the experience that others feel a certain way about. The way others feel about the behavior of your people. That's all brand is. And there's a certain word that we're all used to using and hearing by now all around the marketing world to describe the way people at a company behave, or maybe the way we should behave if we're going to build special brands. That word is also today's big idea. So that word and today's big idea, authenticity. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you roll your eyes or even tune out of this entirely because uh, yet another marketer screaming, be authentic, hear me out. Because I think we constantly say that word, but forget what it actually means. It means true to one's own personality, spirit, or character. But here's the thing. If someone is having a terrible day, week, or year, do you really want them being true to that on behalf of your company? Negative energy and cynicism leaking out into your content? Or what if they're bored with the work and they show up to, I don't know, deliver a speech that you hired them to give on a stage, and they've given the same speech 20 times before, and they feel checked out? Do you want a glum-looking speaker, or do you want them to fake how they feel about it and try to deliver something great? They're being inauthentic to how they truly feel on that day, but that's probably what you want, no? Or how about me, right now, on this microphone? This isn't actually how I speak to people offline. Not exactly. This is how I speak when narrating a podcast, when performing. The exact way I speak wouldn't be as good on the microphone as a narrator. It's not all that different from what you're hearing right now, but it's different enough that, say, my wife would go, yeah, okay, that's not really Jay. So, what do we mean when we say authentic? Because authenticity doesn't mean good. It just means real. And there are some real moments that we all face that we don't want to have leak out into the public. And there are also some real jerks in the world. So if they are acting as a jerk in public in their marketing, well, they're still being authentic. So no, I think authenticity is overblown. It's not a panacea. It's not the path. It's just one available path towards a destination we all seek. We want connection. Authenticity ostensibly builds connection unless, like the examples I just gave, it's the wrong time to show how you're really feeling. Connection means genuine relationships with one another, and that includes between us and the customer, especially in B2B, where we can't just transact the world. We shouldn't. If we seek connection, well, sometimes we have to reveal how we're really feeling and in those moments be authentic, and Devin was willing to do so even in a moment where she felt vulnerable. 
It didn't make sense for her to be inauthentic. In fact, she saw the emotion of Margaret and decided, I'm going to reveal how I'm actually feeling too. In that moment, she chose to be authentic, but it's just one available path at her disposal. And both parties involved were glad she took that path. So if you're going to win on word of mouth by being a speakeasy brand, well, you can't be false. You have to be authentic if it creates connection. Otherwise, others won't recommend you. They'll see what you're trying to do. They'll see past the actions. You're trying to transact them. And that is the issue. When you so obviously want to sell somebody that you don't care about connection, and thus you feel inauthentic. So sure, be authentic, but maybe far better. Just focus on customer connection. I was I was checking out your Twitter uh, lately, and uh, January eighth, two thousand nineteen. Part of a tweet wrote you wrote as a marketer, I feel pretty cold and dead inside about most content. Uh, later that same day, you said something about like my cold dead marketing heart is again delighted. So my my question is, Devin, are you okay? <laughs> Absolutely, and I honestly like I think that being cold and dead inside actually makes me a better marketer because I look back to the early days when I first started marketing and I was like, I believed in it so hard. I thought content marketing was everything. I thought everything that I did was so cool. Everything everyone else did was so cool. And it's like, that's not how you make discerning decisions, right? That's not how you produce the highest quality. It's good to love it. But I think if you come at something as the, from the standpoint of a skeptic, what you produce is actually going to be 10 times better because you're going to know to question your own decisions and your own ideas to make sure that you get the best possible product in the end. Isn't there a lot of room between everything is great and awesome and the best idea ever and a skeptic? Yeah, I guess you're right. I think that's true. But I don't mind being somebody that you have to convince to like something right? Like I'd rather be that person where the quality of what you produce has to be so good for me to like it than be that person that's very easily amused. I think there's room for both. And I think when I was earlier on in my career, I definitely was more easily amused. But the fact that it takes that much to amuse me means that I've seen a lot, which means that whatever it is, whether it's strategy or, you know, writing or whatever, it's coming from a place of seeing so much more, I guess. So like the, the likelihood that my ideas are going to be unique are perhaps higher. I don't actually know if that's true, honestly, but that's the way I feel. What, what you just described to me is a skeptic with taste. Like I think a pure skeptic is somebody who says that big idea or small idea or that new approach or, you know, the even small dollop of idealism that somebody brings to the table is not going to work and you're focused on mitigating the risk rather than maximizing the upside. But what you're talking about is actually to maximize the upside, you have to go through the gauntlet of skepticism. So you're like, I have taste to make sure that whatever pops out the other end that we do is is actually good, is actually worthy of excitement. No? I 100% agree with that. Definitely. So how does that change like how you interact with your team, I guess? Well, when I interact, you know what it is? I feel like when I'm interacting with my team, I'm always trying to show them what's possible. I know that sounds really broad, but I think when you're early on in your career, and I, I hate always bringing it down to like stage of your career, but I just keep thinking back to when I started and 
I had sort of a limited, limited data set of what was possible. And so when, say, a customer comes to us with a marketing problem or, you know, we're, ch- we're having trouble helping a customer win, right? Like the content that we're producing, like, you know, is falling flat or something, you know, we have to rethink what we're doing. And when I'm like talking to, you know, new, fresh content marketers that are working here, it's like, I'm trying to help them see like push the boundaries back of what is possible to consider, right? It's not just like, we don't have to write, um, if we want to write a post to rank for a keyword, it doesn't, even though we have to follow certain structures, the post doesn't have to be boring. And here's how we can make it different and interesting to the reader. So it's serving a business value as well as uh, making the, you know, delighting the reader. Jimmy Daly leads marketing and sales for animals. Yeah, so the Speakeasy brand started kind of by accident. Um, as as often happens uh, with service businesses, the cobbler's children have no shoes, right? So like we're doing content marketing and strategy for customers and there's just like no time for us to do it for ourselves. Um, that that was how it started. Uh, but then we, we noticed something that happened, which was that uh, people would refer us uh, they would kind of add their friends or colleagues to our little club. And uh, it was so exciting for them to be in the know that it was, it was, it seemed that it was better than making a huge effort um, to kind of brand ourselves explicitly. I asked Jimmy what you might've been thinking for a while here. Don't we want more reach and more audience and more awareness? I mean, doesn't that make our jobs easier? The content marketer in me wants the broadest possible exposure. Um, the salesperson inside of me knows that our secret society helps us close deals. So it's, it's kind of being pulled in both directions a little bit. I do think, though, that um, you know, part of the way we operate uh, our own content marketing has been also kind of under the radar, right? Like, I don't spend a ton of time promoting our stuff or link building or any of the things that a good content marketer should do. Cause I, I don't have time. Um, and so I really would like to get that stuff out to more people. Um, whether they become customers or not is immaterial. Like I just, I feel like we have some really, we've learned so much from working with all these great companies. I just want to be able to share that stuff. So really excited on that end. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we, as we build out our new site, like we're going to be a little protective over, um, Uh, how much we offer up about exactly who we are and exactly what we do and exactly who we work with so that we can maintain a little bit of that speakeasy feel too. Um, Our process around customer management, for example. So we, for example, were not doing monthly customer reports. So we were producing all this content. We We actually do a lot of strategy for our customers too, but we weren't reporting back to them on how the strategy that we set up and the content that we produced and published for them was performing. And that was like, it seemed so obvious, but like it took us a little while to realize that that was important. So like customers would kind of have this, like, you know, we'd be talking to some people and they'd be questioning the value of what we deliver, which is normal. They're, they're paying us, right? Like they should question that. And we realized like, duh, we're not doing our due diligence to show them what we're doing for them. So we said, okay, we're going to implement monthly reports. Then the next question was, what are these monthly reports supposed to look like? 
what do we put in them? Right. So it was like, okay, here's a template for our monthly reports. Then we started sending those monthly reports and getting feedback and seeing like, okay, what do customers care about? What they not care about, et cetera. And that's like a very small example, right? The other one is like customer management period. So like we didn't have a way to manage all the like onboarding tasks for a customer. P.S. We didn't actually even have an onboarding process now that I think about it. So like implement an onboarding process so that customers get a beautiful, seamless experience right from the get-go. They're seeing value right away. So we're delivering stuff up front um, in addition to the articles and we're super organized. They don't have to think about us. Like these are all things we were kind of doing ad hoc, but had zero process around that we, you know, okay, now we have a process for it. How do we make sure that process is documented and repeated? Okay. Now we need a sauna. How do we set up a sauna? You know, and then we have to add that to our employee onboarding, right? Like you start to think about what it takes to look good and deliver for a customer. And on the back end, there's a lot there's a lot of little steps along the way that are kind of messy to get there. As a lot of marketing blogs grow up, they actually get they get bigger and they get worse. So I would like to get bigger and hopefully better too. So how do you make sure that your marketing is actually aligned with a speakeasy level service? I think it's a little bit of trial and error. Like, you know, some and you know this and I know this, like sometimes you just have to put something out there and see how it works before you can really figure out what the final end product should be. And so I think when it comes to our brand and our and our company marketing product, it's going to be honestly a little messier than say what we're delivering to our customers cuz we're tr- we're we're probably going to be trying things that are more complicated, more risky because we're, we've made that decision to take risk with our own brand to try it. Whereas with customers, we're going to be trying to deliver things that we are more of a guarantee, right? We want to deliver them things that we know will work so we can show them results faster and let them decide to take risks or, you know, maybe occasionally approach them and say, this is a risk. Do you want to try it with us? Uh, we're small. Uh, we don't need a ton of volume to be successful right now. The thing that would unlock a lot of new opportunities for us is the opportunity to be really choosy about who we work with. And um, so if we were able to double or triple the number of qualified leads we get in a month, um, it would force us to think really carefully about who we're working with and never feel like we have to say yes because we need the business. I think it only takes a couple of customers, right? If you win a couple of good, like, high, like you know, well-known brands that are known for their high quality content in the beginning, like that's all it takes. And I think that's why, like why we were so successful early on. We all obsess over all these things, tons of stuff, everything under the sun as marketers today, but very few of us spend actual proactive strategic time thinking about word of mouth, what creates it, what's being said, what benefits it holds for our business, a speakeasy survives solely on word of mouth. And I'm not saying that's what we all have to do, but taking a page from them can be profoundly useful for our companies, both the literal type of speakeasy and the metaphorical ones too. Care about word of mouth, care about quality, and care about the customer. And you can wrap all of that stuff together 
by caring about one overarching idea. Brand. In this world of yet another commodity company or product, ask yourself, what makes your brand an exception? Thanks to Drift for making this show possible. If if you haven't yet, check out Seeking Wisdom. Seeking Wisdom is their flagship Drift podcast. They have a whole network of podcasts called Seeking Wisdom Originals. That's what Exceptions is. But Seeking Wisdom started it all. And it's hosted by Drift CEO and co-founder David Cancel and VP of Marketing Dave Gearhart. And they talk all about getting better every day. So check out Seeking Wisdom in your podcast player of choice. Also, if you like this show, you might like my personal podcast, Unthinkable, where I tell stories about people who break from conventional thinking at work to think for themselves. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, and I can't thank you enough for listening to this show. Every listener, every download, and most especially every comment we get on social media really does give us the confidence we need to continue going. So thank you again for your support, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of Exceptions. See ya. See ya.